Hey, everybody. Welcome to season two of True Crime IRL. True crime in real life. This is a new limited series called The Manchester Mysteries. You'll still be getting real-life stories of crime and unsolved cases, but all wrapped up in a very different package. This season, I'm concentrating on the captivating stories that have come out of one particular small Midwestern town called Manchester. Manchester is both weird and wonderful, with a full cast of interesting characters who have some unique stories to tell. I'll be presenting you with tales of murder, mayhem, and crimes of passion. And I'll be bringing you everything from missing persons cases to questionable suicides, and even a homicide that went unsolved for 40 years. There'll be an element of local folklore to some of our tales, but also a healthy dose of science, DNA technology, forensics, history, government, law, and so much more. And yes, it's all out of one little community in small town America. If you think you had our country's heartland all figured out, well, guess again, because I'll be bringing you stories this season that would make Ted Bundy blush. Season two of True Crime IRL, The Manchester Mysteries, debuts January 14th, 2022, and is available everywhere you get your podcasts. Until then, lock your doors, people, even if, or especially if you live in Manchester. Bye-bye. Welcome to True Crime IRL. True crime in real life. I'm your host, Kelly Barron's Brink. Episode 11, The Trial Continued. Hey everyone, I hope you're all staying well and healthy. We aren't. (laughs) Not in my house. (sighs) And I hate to complain or be negative, because that's not what you come here for. You come here for murder, just kidding, no. But really, you guys are my people, so I'm going to tell you. This winter has hit us like a Mack truck. So we just had COVID go through our whole house, which like, uh, it seems kind of like COVID isn't much of a thing anymore. So it was weird. But um, yeah, all our tests were positive and that was a huge shock. And then my kiddo, he was not even over that plague of COVID yet. And then he tested positive for influenza A, which is just like, it's just crazy. This poor kiddo. He was so sick. And I... um feel like I feel like I've been totally neglecting my social media and the podcast a little bit too and I feel bad but that just means that all of this illness will be out of the way by April right it better be because on Saturday April 16th I'll be doing a live show with the captain from True Crime Garage and Bob Ruff from Truth and Justice and True Crime Binge This will be my second show, live show with Captain, and my first with Bob Ruff, 
I'm really excited. This show is going to be in Grand Rapids, Michigan at a very cool theater. It's called The Wealthy Theater. VIP tickets are pretty much sold out already. Awesome. Thank you guys for buying those. But there are plenty of general admission tickets left. Doors open at 7 p.m., show at 7.30 with a meet and greet after, so you'll get to get all your selfies in with Bob and Captain, and of course, me too. And the last show we did in Illinois was such a good time, and I think this is going to be even better. So buy your tickets at captainfathands.com slash events, and I'll see you then. So I like to release two episodes each week, but you've probably noticed that I've only been releasing one episode a week, and gosh, I hate that. So one reason I'm wanting to release more episodes is because, well, I already have my next series all planned out, and I'm super excited to bring that to you, and I think you're going to love it. So here's how the next few weeks of the Manchester Mysteries are going to go down, just so you know what's ahead. Today I'm bringing you some more super interesting footage. So first we're going to hear from the DNA expert who actually handled the DNA samples in this trial. She is super intelligent. She's got years of experience and she's worked on a ton of trials. But the defense in this case is trying to paint a picture that the evidence could have been mishandled, that there could have been DNA transfer and things like that. But the prosecution shows that clearly there's no way that could have happened. And they also show clearly that because of the DNA evidence, nobody else could have possibly killed Michelle Martinko other than Jerry Burns. So after you hear more about the DNA, you'll hear again from Detective Matt Denlinger, who worked on Michelle's cold case for years, and so did his father before him, which is super cool. Two generations of investigators were fighting to find Michelle's killer, and then they finally did. And then finally in this episode, we will hear from Michael Allison, who lived with Jerry Burns while they were both in jail awaiting their trials. Michael would often play Pinochle with Jerry, and they got close. And because of that closeness, Jerry Burns revealed some damning information to Michael who Burns referred to as his son. He made jokes about Michelle's murder while in jail, and he made references to the mall and murder. Michael Allison, having a 17-year-old daughter himself, felt the need to report these events to his attorney. And most importantly, he was promised no plea deal for this testimony. This witness is in jail, yes, He's been in prison before, yeah, and he's definitely not squeaky clean, but he's also a U.S. military veteran, and he comes off as a very believable witness, even with his criminal past. So that's what's in store for the episode you're about to hear. And after this episode, we're going to finish up the Jerry Burns trial, and then I'll be interviewing a few locals to discuss their reaction when one of their own, a Manchester native, was found guilty of the brutal murder of Michelle Martinko. People in this town are still divided. On one hand, Jerry Burns was a well-known business owner here. Everyone knew him, his brothers, his family, his businesses. And it's still surreal that he could have done this. But as I've said before, his DNA got into Michelle's car and onto Michelle's dress the night she was murdered, showing that Jerry was there. 
that DNA doesn't lie. And that is the number one reason that the other half of the Manchester community does believe he did it. Whether they like it or not, these people are convinced by the facts. And I'm one of those people. And that doesn't make some of the locals happy. I've been contacted, not in the nicest way, by members of a certain family. And they're not happy with me. They're not happy that I'm covering this case in my podcast. I've had a few harassing messages and things like that, which is not really something I expected when I started this podcast because I'm definitely not the first podcaster to discuss this case. I'm one of many. And I'm not talking about Michelle Martinko's family, just to FYI. It's the other side. (laughs) And I get that they're mad and I get that they're upset. I probably would be too. Honestly, my heart goes out to not only Michelle's family, but the convicted killer's family as well, because they didn't ask for this. This man is someone that they trusted and that they thought they knew. I can only imagine the blow this was to that family. And as a reminder, this family has also already lost a lot. Not only did they lose Jerry to prison, but they've lost a few other family members. And that's kind of why I specifically call this the Manchester Mysteries, because there are a lot of mysteries surrounding some of the things that have happened in this town. So remember, Jerry Burns' cousin, Brian Burns, went missing on the anniversary of Michelle Martinko's death. And just a few days after, someone had called in an anonymous, credible tip to Crime Stoppers regarding Michelle Martinko's murder. That person could not be tracked down, and they were never heard from again. For years, the Burns family and friends of Brian Burns mourned his loss, assuming that he was dead, but not knowing for sure. And they did legally declare him dead in 2021. It was really as if he had just disappeared into thin air. But recently, local investigator Travis Hemsath has reopened Brian Burns' case. Authorities have even done some digging on property in the area, thinking that Brian Burns' body could have been buried there. But so far, nothing. Most locals do think that foul play was involved in Brian Burns' disappearance. I've never heard anyone say anything to the contrary. In fact, with so many coincidences in Burns' disappearance and Michelle Martinko's murder, many people have been left wondering... Is Jerry Burns somehow responsible not only for Michelle's death, but also his own cousin, Brian Burns? The other Burns family tragedy happened a few years back when Jerry Burns' wife, the woman he was actually married to at the time he killed Michelle, committed suicide by self-inflicted gunshot wound. The weapon was a shotgun. Both suicide and suicide by firearms specifically are somewhat rare occurrences for females. Where there's a will, there's a way, but it's not all that easy for a small woman to turn a long shotgun onto her own body and fatally shoot herself. So there are a lot of questions left behind about this whole thing. I need to say, it cannot be proven that Patricia Byrne's death was anything other than suicide. It was ruled a suicide. And that's all I'm going to say about that. Most of the Manchester mysteries revolve around the Burns family specifically, but there are several other interesting crimes, and murders even, that have surprisingly taken place right here in this small community. 
and I've been focusing so much on burns that I haven't even really gotten into the other stuff yet, but I'm going to in the next couple episodes. I'm going to talk more about the infamous corn rake murder, and I'll talk about the Mother's Day murders of the Sweet family. And then I'll wrap up this season in a tidy little package and send it on its way. And then I'll be moving on to my next project and you're going to love it. And I can't wait. So stay tuned and stick with me. Really quick, I need to thank my most recent generous donors to the show. I'm, I'm a little behind on thank yous, which is totally the story of my life. But you guys, you're awesome. You may or may not know that... You know, it's not free to produce a podcast, but it's my passion, so I'm never going to stop. No worries. But your donations help a ton to pay for things like hosting, editing software, equipment, and those cute little stickers I send out to you guys, and just so many things. So I need to say thank you this week to Jaren S., Cheryl B., Maggie, Jen G., Carter, Carla, and Beth M., Thank you for helping me keep the lights on. I sent you guys some of my newest cute stickers, so I hope you enjoy those. And if you want to donate to the tip jar, you can go to truecrimeirl.com and click on the little sidebar that says tip jar. You can also go to any of my social media. The link is there everywhere. And you can find my link tree. Or you can go on Patreon and search True Crime IRL and become a patron. So enjoy episode 11 here. It's uninterrupted, and it's packed full of more interesting trial sound bites from this fascinating case. But first, let's hear a quick word from our sponsors. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. State calls Christina Nash. What is your current occupation? I'm employed as a senior DNA analyst at Bodie Technology in Lorton, Virginia. Can you tell us about Bodie Technology? Yes, Bodie Technology is a private DNA lab um, that works on cases from all over the world, different agencies, uh, different clients, as well as innocent project cases. We receive evidence there, test it, issue reports, and go testify if needed. You mentioned Innocence Project then, and um, is that one of the organizations that sends you uh, evidence to test or sends Bodie? Yes. So uh, Innocence Projects, every state we've received cases for, uh, for different client agencies, police agencies, attorney agencies. How long have you been employed by Bodie Technologies? I've been employed at Bodie for about five and a half years. Uh, describe uh, what duties are entailed in being a senior DNA analyst. Um, the supervisor will assign cases, of which, depending on the technologies, will be assigned to myself or other people on my team. I'll process biological material from items of evidence, make comparisons to references that had also been submitted, and issue reports on my uh, conclusions. I'll also help train newer analysts and review uh, other analysts' work. How many samples have you analyzed using uh, DNA typing techniques that you learned through your experience in through Bodhi Technologies? Thousands of samples. 
any type of item of evidence that someone would come in contact with that may be submitted for a potential uh, criminal case, we can test it usually. What, what type of quality assurance measures does your lab uh, take to ensure that your results are reliable? So we have many quality assurance measures. Uh, a couple can be that our facility is a secure facility. You can't just enter the facility and access evidence. Uh, our evidence is secured in a further lockdown location. We wear protective equipment when we go into the lab, such as lab coats, uh, goggles, hair nets, gloves. We bleach in ethanol, so we clean our area before working on each item of evidence. We only work with one item of evidence at a time. We initiate controls throughout our testing, such as negative, positive, and reagent blanks. We also have all of our work reviewed by another trained analyst and possibly a supervisor before issuing any type of reports. Have you ever testified as an expert witness in a forensics in forensic DNA analysis? Yes. Okay. About 37 or 38 times. Can you tell us, do you testify in terms of criminal investigations for both the prosecution and the defense? Yes. Uh, our testimony is the same regardless of who calls us for uh, testimony. Okay, Ms. Nash, so we've asked this of, of all of our DNA experts, so I'm going to give you a shot at it, too, here. Should be easy one. What is DNA? So DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. It's the building block that makes you unique, um, allows the body to function. It's the code for everything. You get half of that from your mother, half of that from your father. Is DNA the same between human beings? About 99% of it is the same, but there's the 1% that makes you as an individual unique. And it, is it that uh, 1% area then that's uh, normally the focus of the type of testing that you do? Yes. So the locations that we're specifically looking at uh, would be unique to you unless you have an identical twin. And is the DNA in all parts of your body uh, the same? Yes. So if we obtain a DNA profile from your hair, it would be the same in your saliva, in your blood, um, in your fingernail, from your touch swabs. The only instance... Uh, that I've come across where it's been different is if you've had a bone marrow transplant um, because now you're generating blood from a different individual. When you're doing your um, DNA forensic testing, how, how do you get a DNA profile? Well, we usually generate a DNA profile following uh, the DNA workflow. It starts with sampling from an item of evidence, uh, extracting DNA from that item of evidence, quantitating, which is the estimation of how much DNA was on that item, we then amplify that, that sample um, at the locations, that 1% that we talked about. And then we visualize that on our instrumentation, at which point I would analyze that data and make comparisons to a reference sample that has gone, undergone the same process. How much biological material do you need to generate a DNA profile? Well, for a complete profile, um, we like to have at least 20 cells, which translates to uh, 6 to 20 picograms of DNA will give us a, a full profile. Did your laboratory, Bodie Laboratory, receive evidence from the Cedar Rapids Police Department and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigations Laboratory regarding the investigation of a cold case homicide involving an extract from blood scrapings taken from a gear in a known buckle swab of an individual by the name of Jerry Lynn Burns? Yes. So 17P, can you tell us uh, what that is? This is a copy of the inventory for this particular case. So it's the documentation of when we receive items of evidence and what we do with them 
when we take it into the lab initially. So our first time opening the envelope, what we see um, and what it's labeled as and uh, any item numbers. Um, this inventory does document who had the evidence at the time and what they did during their initial um, examination of those items. So these items, uh, this item of evidence was received uh, June 4th, 2019. And does this document then um, the chain of custody, the evidence until the time that it, it was sent back? Yes. Okay, and I think on the bottom we have one last date there, November of 19, November 12th. Yes, so this is when we're finished with testing. We notify the client or the client notifies us that uh, they would like the evidence back. At that point, we package the evidence and draw down any extracts and return them to the submitting agency. Uh, first of all, what is this document? How would you describe it? This is the final report I authored uh, dated July 10, 2019, detailing my results and conclusions for the testing in this case. As you said, from the uh, chain of custody forms on June 4th of 2019, uh, you received the buccal swab from uh, Jerry Lynn Burns. Yes. Okay. And so I was going to ask you about that. Then uh, when you evaluated this uh, sample and did the testing out, you only found one single source? Correct. So you were confident you were dealing with just one uh, strand of DNA from one individual? From one contributor, yes. And then your finding indicates the individual associated with... Um, uh, Jerry Lynn Burns, the, so that's from the known buccal of Burns, is that right? Yes. Cannot be excluded as a possible contributor of the partial YSTR profile. Can you explain that finding? Uh, cannot be excluded means this person is included as a match to this profile. What would you need to be able to exclude somebody? Uh, we would need a Mitch match in our little table. So when you, if you want to scroll to page three yes, of please. the report. So this is an allele table. It's a summation of all the DNA testing I've completed and the analysis. It results in the 23 locations that we tested, which are listed here, the DYS locations. These are different locations on the Y chromosome. This first column is sample EO1, and the second column is uh, the reference for uh, Jerry Lynn Burns. We then make our comparisons. Again, this is a summation. I actually look at the raw data and the electropharograms, but this uh, is a quick uh, comparison so that it, it's easier for juries and attorneys to other, understand. Thank you. <laughs> so as you can see, we can go locus by locus. DYS 576, let's see that. So these are different locations. These are the 23 locations we tested. In the evidence sample, we obtained a 17. In Barnes' profile, we had also obtained a 17. And at all the locations that we looked at where we developed DNA, they matched to what we have from uh, Barnes' reference sample. I think you mean Burns, right? Burns, okay. yes. That's Burns. okay. Right. In order to exclude someone, which is our, usually our first go, it's our first go to see if there is any mismatches, uh, there would have to be at least two numbers will mismatch from this person's profile. But you didn't find any evidence of there being any lack of a match at any of the... Correct. Alleles. All those alleles correspond to the alleles we see in uh, Burns' profile. You've got the information, you developed the profile from the gear shift extract, and then the profile from um, the buckle swab of, of Mr. Burns here. So didn't, do you then um, take that profile that you developed and uh, use the... Um, uh, 
information that's on this report to come up with some calculations? Yes. So we have a database that we search. It's referred to the USYSTR database. It's a subset of male individuals in the database to represent uh, the United States as a whole. And obviously, it doesn't contain everyone in that database, but that's why we apply a confidence interval to our statistic. We have different database groups that we search through. So African-American, Asian, Caucasian, Hispanic, and Native American. And then we give a total for the combined populations within this USYSTR database. So in the African-American database, we did not see this partial profile at all in the about 1,300 individuals. In the Asian database, we didn't see the profile at all in 650 individuals. In the Caucasian database, we didn't see this profile at all in about 1,400 individuals. Hispanic database, again, we didn't see the profile at all in 961 individuals. And in the Native American database, we didn't see this profile at all in 882 individuals. So that gives us a total for combined populations of zero and 5,305 that we didn't see this profile. We are 95% confident that we would expect only one individual and about 1,700 male individuals to have this YSTR profile. So if I had a room of 1,700 male individuals, I would expect to see this YSTR profile once. So this is 0.0564% of U.S. males would have this YSTR profile, this partial YSTR profile. So you're in including less than... Well, not quite 0%, but 0.0564% could potentially be included as having this partial profile. Correct, 0.0564%. In regards to uh, the number of individuals or the percentage of in individuals that would be excluded from having this partial profile, can you give us that figure? And that's about 99.94% of U.S. male individuals would be excluded uh, from this partial profile. Ms. Nash, since you're um, targeting males by doing this uh, process, yes. then after the testing was done, were you uh, confident that you um, only found the existence of one male contributor? Correct. Okay. There's single source, uh, no evidence of additional male contributors in this particular sample. Okay. That's all I have. Thanks. Mr. Maybanks or Mr. Harris, you may call your next witness. Here the state recalls Matt Denlinger. Matt, yesterday there was some testimony uh, received regarding uh, State's Exhibit Number 8, which now has been uh, received into evidence. Matt, does, again, does this uh, contain the names of individuals in this investigation that were ruled out as uh, suspects because their DNA was compared to the suspect male DNA profile, resulting in them being eliminated as a contributor? Yes. As it's now displayed in the TV above you there, did you indicate um, by highlighting the name of uh, Mr. Burns in this document? I did. And what does that signify? That's the one name on the list that we uh, were not able to eliminate. And we heard that testimony yesterday. Um, through the course of the investigation then, did you and Detective Larison collect DNA from some individuals that were uh, known to Michelle back in 1979 and um, had been, or had been friends with her? We did. We collected DNA from uh, as many of her friends as we could 
uh, come up with, including ex-boyfriends and the people that were, you know, had contact with her that night, Andy Seidel, Merlin Winkler, Todd Bergen, Tracy Price, you know, Kurt Thomas. We, we collected from all of them. For example, here above you, we've uh, gone to the page here where Charles Seidel, is that uh, Andy's first name, Charles? Yes, it is. And can you indicate then for us how... Uh, that uh, his where his DNA was checked and eliminated, right here, Charles Seidel. It's it's checked uh, in that box, and at the top, it's listed as uh, being eliminated under the watch of uh, Doug Larison. Okay, and same for we can get to it, uh, Mike Wyrick. Correct, Mike Wyrick, uh, right there, also done under the supervision of Doug Larison. And then at the top of the same page here, uh, do you see where Kurt Thomas is referenced? Yes, I do. And, again, was that eliminated under the watch of Detective Larison? Correct. And then I believe Mr. White, who we heard from in this case, too, he's there. Is that right? Yes, Jeff White, right here. And you mentioned some other uh, individuals, Mr. Price, Mr. Bergen, and Mr. Miller. Are they also on this list? Correct. Okay. Thank you. We'll go ahead and take this down then for now. As part of this uh, investigation, Matt, did you um, locate some photographs of the defendant from the approximate time period of this case? Yes, I did. In what's shown is State's Exhibit 13A, um, Matt, is this, uh, to your knowledge, a picture of uh, Mr. Burns' wedding photo photograph from approximately April of 1975? Yes, it is. And based upon your investigation into this case, uh, is 13B a picture uh, from approximately December? of 1980. Yes, it is. And uh, from your understanding, then, the gentleman in the middle, um, the older gentleman, is that Mr. Burns? Yes. And is it your understanding from the investigation that this photograph also of Mr. Burns is from approximately the summer of 1979? Yes. All right. Thank you. We'll go ahead and take those down. We heard some testimony yesterday that the known buckle swabs of Ken and Don Burns were also sent to the DCI lab where profiles were developed and compared to the suspect male DNA profile from F5, resulting in both Ken and Don Burns being eliminated as contributors. Were you involved in the collection of those buckle swabs? Yes, I collected both of those myself. And do you remember what, um, what day you collected those buckle swabs? Uh, January 31st, 2019. Just to make sure we cover it, can you tell us about uh, how you collected the buckle swabs of um, Ken Burns first, just the procedure involved? Uh, we drove to Manchester, and we met with him. Um, I used the same procedure that I always use. I put on rubber gloves. We used the sealed uh, swabs and an envelope, and I collected them by... Uh, Taking the Q-tip, I rub it on the inside of both cheeks. You're just doing both just to make sure you get enough DNA. And then we put them back in the envelope, we seal it up, and uh, eventually turn them into the lab. And when did you collect the uh, DNA of Don Burns? Uh, the same day. We drove right from Manchester to Davenport. We met with him and did the same procedure. And uh, we're both Don and Ken Burns' DNA then properly secured and delivered to the police department where, as we heard yesterday, um, Investigator Kruger delivered them to the lab for further analysis? Yes. I want to take you to the day of December 19th, 2018. 
And my first question for you is, what was the significance of that day? Uh, that's the 39th anniversary of Michelle's death. Did you and the investigative team at the Cedar Rapids Police Department decide to um, develop a plan for December 19th, 2018, in terms of uh, approaching Mr. Burns? Yes. And was that date chosen after you had received the results of the uh, testing done <clears throat> on the straw that was um, taken from Mr. Burns, as we heard yesterday, um, that found that he could not be eliminated as a contributor to crime scene F5? Correct. What preparations were made to conduct the interview that day? Um, well, we just made plans at, at the police department. I think there was about 18 of us um, that were going to go to Manchester that day. Um, but specifically myself and J.D. Smith were going to uh, conduct an interview. It had been 39 years, so we weren't really sure how someone was going to react. Okay. Just that wanted, was that just was wanted to be, be mindful. I'm sorry. We're talking the same time. Go ahead. I, we just wanted to be uh, prepared. Okay. All right. And so the purpose of having multiple inv officers involved is... Essentially, you didn't know what was going to happen, so you wanted to be prepared for any, any possible scenario? Correct. Despite the number of officers involved, was it the plan to arrest him when you talked to him that day? No, the plan was to interview him. We had no fixed intention to arrest him. Did you indeed conduct an interview of um, Mr. Burns on December 19th of 2018? Yes, we did. And where did you conduct that interview? Uh, we conducted at uh, at his business. Approximately what time did you conduct that interview? Uh, we started uh, shortly before noon. I think it was about 11.45 a.m. Was that interview recorded? Yes, it was. And not to give away too many secrets here, but can you tell us how that interview was recorded? Uh, we took a uh, covert camera. So it's a little hidden camera that also has audio so that it would record the video and the audio of it so that we could refer to it later. And then I also had what we call a, a transmitter, an audio transmitter uh, with us so that uh, the other units that weren't in the interview could listen to the interview in case they need to, to help us or just for information. So you brought the uh, covert camera to record video and audio directly of Mr. Burns? Correct. And there was also a live feed of sorts set up so others could listen? Yeah, they could, they could listen. They couldn't see the video, though. When you arrived at Mr. Burns' uh, place of business on December 19th of 2018 at approximately 11.45 a.m., were you in uniform? No, I was wearing some uh, dress pants and a button-up shirt. I uh, had my jacket on. It was chilly out, and, so, and that's what I normally wear to work. And so uh, did you have a Cedar Rapids Police Department badge visible when you talked to him? No. No, I left my coat on the whole time. Any, any guns showing or sidearms or anything like that? No. Is that pretty standard uh, procedure then for a, a soft interview approach or just to go talk to somebody about yes. information? Yes, correct. Tell us what happened when you walked inside uh, Mr. Burns' business to speak to him. Um, it's, it's, it's a business. They have customers. So the side door that I think the customers probably use, that's the door we, we went into. It was standing open. Um, so I went in and I just, I didn't know where anyone was at. So I said hello a couple times. And then I heard, uh, Mr. Burns from his office say, come on in. Did you enter that office area, make contact with Mr. Burns? 
We did. What did you do once you made contact with them? Uh, we introduced ourselves. I told them we were at the cold case unit. I gave them a business card, asked them if it would be all right if we uh, sat, sat and talked to them. And as you began to speak with Mr. Burns, did you tell him what case you were working on? I did. I told them we were working on uh, the Michelle Martinko homicide case. Did uh, the defendant indicate that he'd heard about that case? He did. He said he'd heard about it back, back in the day. Did you tell him why you were there to speak to him? I did. I told him his name came up. What was his response to that, if anything? Uh, he said, strange. And what kind of reaction, if any, did you observe when you mentioned Michelle Martinko's name? Not much. Um, no really visible reaction from him at all. I'll ask you, uh, Matt, do you recognize those exhibits? <clears throat> yes, I do. What are those? Uh, these are the uh, images that were created by Parabon during our investigation. Did you use these uh, photographs during your interview with Mr. Burns? I did. I brought all three of these with me. I printed off color copies and showed them to him. Matt, during the interview uh, with Mr. Burns, based upon your observations of him, did he show any, any emotion about the questions being asked or in providing any answers to those questions? No. And did that uh, continue up to the point where he was ultimately arrested? Yeah, even after being arrested, he showed almost no emotion or reaction to anything. Do you recall... Um, asking Mr. Burns directly, did you murder someone that night? Yes. What was his response? I, I don't remember. His, <laughs> it was test it. That's his response. Test it. During your interaction with Mr. Burns, did you see some uh, noticeable scars to his hands or to his arms? Yeah, he had he had a bunch of scars on his hands and arms. Okay. Were they on both hands and both arms? Yes. Was there quite a few of them? Yeah, there was, there was quite a few. Shift gears just a little bit here, uh, Matt, and take you to March of 2019. Did you coordinate with uh, DCI lab criminalist Mike Schmidt in Bodie Laboratories in Lorton, Virginia, to send Bodie DCI uh, lab exhibit I, the blood scrapings from the gear shift selector? Yes, I did. And as we heard yesterday, was that done? Was it sent then? Yes, it was. On, a, on or about June 3rd, 2019, did you then receive a request from Bodie to send more evidence to be used as comparison to the gear shift selector with the blood? Yes. And what did you prepare and send to Bodie on or about June 3rd of 2019? Uh, they asked for um, one of Jerry Burns' known buckle swabs to compare to the profile that they had developed from the blood scrapings from the gear shift. So was it your understanding they had developed a profile, but they needed the swabs for comparison? Yes. At this time, we have no further questions, Your Honor. Yes, thank you. Um, by the way, uh, Investigator Denlinger, what is the distance between Manchester, Iowa, and Westdale Mall? So even today, I'd want to pull it up on my phone if... You're asking me to give you a distance. It's about 45 minutes drive. Close to an hour, though, to drive from um, Manchester to Westdale Mall? I usually drive from downtown Cedar Rapids. So, yeah, if you want to add 15 minutes, I would say an hour is probably a good approximate. Uh, you knew, of course, that he had been married. Yes. Uh, did you know that he had young children in 1979? 
Yes. Did you know that before you met with him in December? Yes. And how old were his children in December of, of 1979? Uh, you put me on the spot. Um, he had two at that time. <clears throat> Um, one was, was young, born in, I think, early 79. One had been born uh, 75, 76, so um, probably, you know, three, four, and then less than one. In the um, course of your investigation, and I think that you referred to it earlier in your testimony today about the number of people who had been eliminated based on the comparison of uh, those persons' DNA to the male profile in F5. This found in Exhibit 8, correct? Correct. And um, in the course of your investigation and becoming familiar with the groundwork that had been laid by your predecessors, you learned that there were a lot of potential suspects whose identity, investigation, DNA was all explored by uh, investigators like you and your predecessors. Correct. And you learned in your preparation for your work in this case that there were a number of people who had actually confessed to killing Michelle Martinko. Correct. And among the people who had confessed were uh, an inmate in the Anamosa State Penitentiary, right? Correct. By the name of Billy Byrne or William Byrne. Correct. And then there were other people who had confessed to their spouses or, or parents having killed Michelle Martinko. Correct. And you compiled, actually compiled a list of the people who had confessed or admitted to killing her, didn't you? I don't remember compiling a list myself. Had, had you seen such a list in the investigative file? I, I don't know if there's a specific list just dedicated to people that have confessed over the years. That document is not a list of people that have confessed. That's a list of suspects they've compiled, which includes people like that, but it's not specifically just people that have confessed. But a number of people in this list had confessed either to other inmates or to parents or to spouses about the killing. Right, and we take that seriously, so we looked into those. And these materials were part of the investigative report that were turned over to us? Correct, yes. In your review of the investigation that had preceded you, were you able to determine whether the, um, the identity of the man who had frightened Michelle Martinko four days before her death had ever been located? Give me a little more background on that one. Sure. Uh, I believe uh, Mr. Seidel testified that uh, in 1981 he had told an interviewer with the Cedar Rapids Police Department that four days before she died, she told him that she had been frightened by an ugly or a grotesque man and she was worried about that. You remember that testimony? Right. Yes, I do. And, and do you know if that person was ever located or identified in any way? No. There was no name, and no one had anything to follow, specific to follow up on on that. Do you know if any of Ms. Martinko's friends were asked about that worry? I, I don't know specifically. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know without reviewing all those reports again to see if they were specifically asked about that. In uh, questioning Mr. Burns on December uh, 19, 2018, this, of course, occurred at his office in Manchester, Iowa. Yes. And um, did you see also uh, in, in the uh, picture shown in the video that we just watched, uh, number 14A, did you see hanging on the wall some belts? 
Oh, yes, yes. Well, uh, they also sold uh, Hustler mowers there at, uh, at the shop, didn't they? Yes. And would those be drive belts for the blades that run the mowers? I don't know. Well, you were asked about uh, scars on Mr. Burns' hands. Did, did he explain those scars to you? Uh, he said he had lots of scars, and he, he didn't know where they all came from. In fact, he told you about an accident he had there at the business, didn't he, where, where his hand got smashed or cut by some equipment? Yes, he did. You noticed him blinking a lot? I did. Did he tell you that he had glaucoma? Yes. And he used medicine in his eyes? I assume that. I don't recall if he said that specifically. Well, you, you told us that um, he didn't exhibit any reaction at all. Do you know what his normal reaction is? No. So Mr. Burns told you that he had gone to the Westdale Mall, and I think, uh, as I heard the audio, that he said that he had gone there with his family? Correct. Christmas shopping? Correct. Had been to Penny's? Correct. And, of course, he was, uh, as you have told us, he was married in 1979? Correct. He um, said that it was not possible that his DNA would have been there at the scene because he wasn't there? Correct. And he said that he didn't think anything happened that night. Correct. That there wasn't any possibility that his DNA would be there. Correct. Traced to the crime. Correct. He didn't understand where this information came that he was potentially involved, where that would have come from. Correct. He didn't believe it, that testing would connect it to him. Correct. And he said repeatedly, I was not there that night. Correct. And if he was there, he didn't have any recollection of it. Correct. No recollection of being there. Thank you. Those are all the questions I have for you. Uh, yes, thank you, Your Honor. Did he indicate to you specifically at any point in time that on December 19, 1979, he was Christmas shopping at Westdale Mall? No. As indicated by the questions you were asked by Mr. Spees, did you and other investigators conduct uh, what you could as far as a comprehensive check of uh, Mr. Burns' background? We did. And would that uh, pertain then to kind of what's referred to sometimes as some intelligence, just to figure out what was going on in his life back then? Yes. Okay. And through that, were you able to develop any kind of uh, connection between him and Michelle Martinko? None. I know you're not a, an eye doctor or anything like that, but you did notice the uh, blinking that took place during the interview? I did. And did that um, observation change at any point in time during the interview? or No. Come we heard uh, testimony from Andy Seidel earlier in this case that um, he reported that Michelle stated to him he was, uh, she was frightened by this, um, this man. And um, from what Andy said, she didn't seem that bothered by it. Was there any more information available based on your review of the investigative file in 1979 to follow up on that? No, there's nothing more that I, I could do to follow up on that. As far as you could tell, was that um, a singular incident reported by Ms. Martinko that there was no other information to follow up on? That's what it looked like. Do you know or have you heard of Billy Byrne? I have. Okay. And who is he? Uh, he's just um, he's an individual that's been arrested in Cedar Rapids for a number of years for a lot of things. Okay. Does he have a violent history? He does. You were asked about Mr. Byrne and, and um, an indication that he may have confessed to killing Michelle Martinko. Is that something Mr. Byrne told you or anybody else? No, he, he didn't tell me. 
any of these individuals who allegedly confessed to this, did anybody confess to a police officer about this? Not to my knowledge, no. To your knowledge, were these reports then second, sometimes third-hand reports? Yes. You and other investigators wanted to solve this, didn't you? I did. So if somebody confessed to the killing of Michelle Martinko and you could prove it, would you have made an arrest? Definitely. Now, Mr. Byrne, let's go back to him specifically. Did he make this confession allegedly in a, in a jail cell? That's or, my understanding. Or in prison? Yeah, okay. correct. So based upon your experience, have you encountered situations where um, individuals are trying to impress other people around them and would say something like that as an intimidation factor? Is that? Yes, yes, exactly. I've heard that multiple times. And to the extent you were able to do it, did you eliminate any individual who purportedly confessed to killing Michelle Martinko through investigative through your investigation in slash or DNA comparison? Correct. And he was eliminated through a CODIS as a. Okay, is that the system that eliminates uh, upwards of like 14 million different individuals with criminal records and whatnot? Absolutely. Yep. That's all we have, Your Honor. Additional cross examination, Mr. Steve. Yes, thank you. Well, Investigator Denlinger, you knew from the uh, interviews that were conducted of Ms. Martinko's friends that when she was working at the Westdale Mall that she was concerned about somebody stalking her in the mall, weren't you? Yeah, I don't remember the specifics of that. I, I do remember there being talk of, of, of people at the mall, um, weird men at the mall and stuff like that. Um, having worked at the mall myself, I'm familiar with people talking like that. Well irrespective of your experience, many, many years later, I'm sure, yes. you knew that her friends were aware that she was concerned about somebody looking in, stalking, looking through the windows of the store that she worked at. Yes. And uh, as far as um, Mr. Byrne or anybody else who allegedly uh, confessed and, and was, by your tally on 8A, eliminated, their DNA was compared to F5, right? Yes. No other DNA that was in, present in the car. Uh, correct, F5. Thank you. That's all. Yes, Your Honor. And at the time that um, Michelle was working, was she working at Lindale Mall at the time? Yes. Okay. Where, where's Lindale Mall? Lindale Mall is on the opposite side of Cedar Rapids from Westdale. And this report that this individual was looking at her and grossed her out or whatever it may be, so you understanding that report was made uh, while she's working at Lindale Mall? Yes, it was. And several days, if not weeks, or a week before this occurred? Correct. That's all you got. We are ready to hear uh, from the state's next witness. Your Honor, the state calls Michael Allison. Mr. Allison um, came to the courtroom today wearing a little bit different clothing than the people that we have been seeing, so... Or do you have some pending criminal charges? Uh, right now I'm in Lynn County. Okay. And I have some pending. All right. And we're going to respect your rights and not ask you about those charges because those are still pending, right? Yes, sir. Okay. But I want you to tell us a little bit about uh, yourself uh, in your background. I'm 53 years old. Uh, went to Oklahoma State University and did some student teaching in Omaha, Nebraska. Moved to San Diego, California when I went to Iraq for two years in 1990 to 1992. And when I came back from Iraq, I lived in San Diego and had a couple problems with uh, marijuana, okay. had two charges. And that's pretty much the history right there. Okay. 
And so you said you went to Iraq. Were you a member of the Armed Forces? Yes, sir. Okay. What branch? In the Navy. And how long were you in the Navy? Four years. Obviously, uh, from what you're telling us, you are on active duty then? Yes, sir. Okay. And you were um, ordered to serve overseas? Yes, sir. Okay. How many years were you in Iraq? Uh, I was two years. Okay. Tell, tell us about that. Well, I actually joined the service just to go to the war, actually. That's why I, I joined. And um, I, went, I went to boot camp in San Diego and went directly to Iraq and then came back for two years in San Diego. So you got back from Iraq, and you were living in San Diego circa 1992, is that right? Yes, sir. Okay. What did you do with your life then? I worked um, a couple different jobs. Uh, I was doing the student teaching for a while, but I didn't really feel like that was for me, so I got into some sales. I worked with Sears in um, uh, installations, and I opened a swimming pool business in San Diego. And I actually I bought a house in 2001 in San Diego, and I got married in 1997. I have two kids, and my ex-wife, she's Mexican-American. She just passed away four months ago from a stroke. I'm oh, sorry to hear that. Yeah. When you lived in, so you have two children. How old yes, are your, sir. How old are your kids? Um, my boy Michael is 23. He just he graduated from uh, Arizona State University, and he was working in um, Hong Kong, and he came back because of the accident with his with my ex-wife, and I have a daughter who's 17. And where, where, where are they? Right now they're in Arizona. Given your circumstances, you haven't had a chance to see them much then? No, not with what has been going on, no. No, sir. Michael, your story doesn't sound uh, much different than some other people, so um, can you tell us uh, what happened as far as, um, you mentioned something about marijuana. Did you get, find yourself in some trouble? Yeah, I, I had a, uh, when I came back from the war, I ended up having a, a substance abuse problem, and uh, that kind of led to some bad decisions. Um, being in San Diego, uh, it's real common for someone who has a drug problem to drive a, a car across the border or a lot of other little things that you can do to support your habit, and that's kind of what I did. What uh, kind of drugs were you using? I was using cocaine and marijuana. And as a result of that activity and being... Becoming involved in drug use, did you pick up a criminal history? Yes, sir, I did. Okay. Do you have some convictions for importation of marijuana? Yeah, I have two convictions for uh, importation of marijuana. One is approximately 25 years ago, and another one is probably 16 years ago, both same circumstances. What did you do? I was given the keys to a car in Tijuana, Mexico, and told to drive it across the border for $2,000. They had drugs in it? Yeah. Did you serve some uh, time in prison for that? Yes, sir, I did. It's our understanding, too, that um, you recently spent some time in, a, in another prison? Yes, sir. Okay, can you tell us about that? Uh, yeah, I was in a Mexican prison for eight years. I was, I was brought over here in March after serving eight years in a Mexican prison. I was apprehended with a small amount of drugs and a false identification, Tijuana. And they gave me eight years, and I served all eight years of it there in Mexico. Mexico. And when they brought me across the border in March, that's why I'm here today in Lynn, Lynn County, because the charge that I'm facing now is from 2009. Is that why you, you say Lynn County? Does that mean you're in the Lynn, Lynn County Jail? That's where you're being yeah. held? Yes, sir. Okay. And you said that charge is from 2009, and I don't want you to say anything else about it because we want to respect your rights, but that was the year, year of the accusation? Yes, sir. Do you remember, Mr. Allison, when you uh, 
approximately when you first arrived at the Lynn County Correctional Center? Yes, I do. It was um, September 20th of 2019. Do you know the defendant in this case, Jerry uh, Lynn Burns? Yes, I do. And how do you know him? I know him from living in the same unit with him. Did you get to know uh, Mr. Burns from being um, in the Lynn County Jail with him? Yes, I did. Jerry and I probably spoke to each other more than we spoke to anybody else in the unit. When do you think you began speaking with Mr. Burns? Probably about two weeks after I got there. We're both kind of quiet as far as that goes, and we ended up coming close after that. So after those first couple weeks, did what happened that, that the two of you began talking? Did, did Mr. Burns say something to you or approach you? Or? Yeah, he told me, he came up to me and told me that I was probably one of the most normal people he, he has seen come through there. We just started talking after that. Under what circumstances did you and the defendant uh, speak to each other? How did, how did you sp spend your time? Uh, we spent a lot of time playing a game called Pinochle. It's a one-on-one -on -one game or two-on-two, -two, but we played one-on-one. -on -one. It was kind of a quiet time. We could actually talk. While the two of you played Pinochle together, would you talk about each other's uh, lives and you know, matters like that? Yes, we would. Yes, sir. At any point in time uh, during your uh, stay with uh, Mr. Burns, did you uh, look at his legal paperwork and police reports or documents or anything like that? No, never. Okay. Never. Now, um, getting back for a moment, Mr. Allison, about your life and some of the things we talked about here today and your criminal history, uh, in interesting one that led you to being in uh, Mexican prison. Fair to say you have some regrets about some of the choices you've made? Absolutely. A lot of them. Is that something that you ever spoke to the defendant about, about having regrets? Yeah. I spoke to him quite a bit about being regretful for getting into the problems I had with, with substance abuse problems and feeling like that led me to most of my problems. When you talked to the defendant about substance abuse and his problems, did what, if anything, did the defendant say to you <coughs> in response to you talking about your regrets? Uh, he said he couldn't really understand about uh, being a drug addict because he never was, but he wished he had uh, listened to his dad and cleaned up after himself, which I thought was kind of strange. I didn't really understand what he was saying at the time. In regards to this conversation about regrets, Mr. Burns indicated to you that um, he wished he would have cleaned up after himself? That... Yes, sir. With respect to the time period of Mr. Burns' offense and the same comment that he made, did Mr. Burns ever indicate anything to you about circumstances of the crime back in the day and his thoughts about it? Yeah, that was in the same conversation, actually, and uh, he said at that time, I think it was 79, he said, or in that area that no one was thinking about a, a DNA as far as it being a possibility. Did you ever ask the defendant directly if he committed the crime with, 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 with which he's charged? Yes, I did. I asked him directly. If, I asked him, Jerry, did you do, it, do the crime? And he said, I can't talk about this. Did he ever suggest to you during your conversations with him that he didn't do it? No, never. You mentioned that you and the defendant would frequently play... Um, Mr. Burns that would play Pinochle together. Do you recall uh, a time, and um, this would be approximately within the last month or since the beginning of the year or so, when you were playing uh, Pinochle with Mr. Burns and you kept beating him? Yeah, um, I remember that well because um, he had told me if I keep beating him in Pinochle, he was going to have to take me to the mall. Mr. Allison, have you heard 
Mr. Burns make that comment to other people or in your presence? No, sir. And do you recall uh, an incident within the last month or so when uh, Mr. Burns came back uh, from court and told you about an encounter that he had with Investigator Denley or with a police officer in the hallway? Yeah, he, he said it was uh, when he was leaving the courtroom, and I think it was his last court day, he said that, um, I can't remember if it was a if it was a detective or if it was a police officer, he said that they had somewhat of a stare down, and he told me that sometimes he called me son, and he said, son, he said, they might have me, but I don't have to bomb my head to him. And they kind of stared at each other. While you were um, staying with uh, Mr. Burns, while you guys were in the same cell block, did his case ever come up uh, in the newspaper? Yeah, it was in the newspaper. Yeah, I want to take you specifically to a Saturday in January, January the 11th of this year, 2020, in the morning. Do you recall an incident where the defendant's picture had appeared in the newspaper and you had an interaction with him about it? Yes, I do. Did you have uh, that newspaper in your uh, possession when that interaction took place? Yeah, it was on the table with us. And did you have a conversation with him about his picture being in the newspaper? Yes, I did. And, Mr. Allison, did you make a request to it, in just or not for Mr. Burns to autograph or sign that newspaper for you? Yes, I did. You just mentioned a little bit ago that at times Mr. Burns would call you son. Yes, sir. Uh, how did that happen? Did it, is that just something uh, he just started to refer to you as? Yeah, it was kind of, we just kind of had that interaction going. Sometimes I'd even call him dad, but uh, we just kind of did that sometimes. Mr. Allison, I ask you if you recognize this photograph in this picture. Yes, sir, I do. And is this uh, the same photograph that you saw in the newspaper that you were reading or had in your possession that you handed to Mr. Burns to sign or autograph? Yes, it is. And does this contain the writing um, on that picture Mr. Burns uh, wrote on in? Y yes, it is. Yes, it is. Uh, Mr. Allison, the photograph's going to come up right above you on that TV there. And is this uh, the note that he wrote to you and his signature that he signed in, in your presence? Yes, it is. And what does that say? It says, to my favorite son, Michael, Jerry Burns. you recall in the unit uh, situation or time when Mr. Burns acted out in a surprising fashion to, to you? Um, yes, I do. Okay. What situation do you recall where... Uh, Mr. Burns acted out in a in a manner that surprised you um, uh, in the cell um, in a, or alarmed you. There was an incident in there where uh, more than one time where the person that sleeps above Jerry uh, he snores a little bit and uh, he caught us all off guard where he grabbed the bunk and almost pulled the bunk halfway down and he almost <laughs> fell out of the bed and we were all just kind of in shock at the outburst. Has uh, Mr. Burns discussed with you uh, his feelings regarding the um, potential outcome of his trial or something he told you, told to you about no matter what happens, what his feelings would be? Yeah, he feels like uh, no matter what happens in this case that he, he wins because he had the, had the opportunity to be out there with his family all these years. No further questions at this time, Your Honor. Uh, did you consider Mr. Burns something of a father figure? I thought he was pretty, uh, pretty calm guy when I when I met him. I mean, 
when we first met. Sure. Mr. Allison, you've described uh, for the uh, men and women of the jury and for us uh, something of your criminal background, and you talked about the difficulties that you had, I take it, after you got back from the servers? Yes, sir. And you uh, said that you also got into sales? Yes, sir. You got into sales in a big way, didn't you? And by that, I mean you got into selling drugs. I, well, I drove drugs across the, the border. That's what happened. Yes, sir. You were trafficking in drugs? Importation of marijuana, yes, sir. Right. That's trafficking, isn't it? In addition to that, uh, you were also convicted in 1996 of conspiracy to com- commit mail fraud. Yes, sir. And you went to federal prison for that. In addition to uh, going to federal prison, you were also placed on supervised release. Yes, sir. And we'll talk about that more in just a bit. In um, 1997, you were convicted of importing marijuana. Yes, sir. And you went to federal prison for that. Yes, sir. In 2003, you were convicted of bringing illegal aliens into the United States. Yes, sir. And you went to federal prison for that. Yes, sir. In 2005, you were again convicted of importing marijuana and went to federal prison for that. Yes, sir. In uh, 2007, you were convicted of again bringing in illegal aliens from across the border. Yes, sir. And went to federal prison for that. Yes, sir. You're currently indicted in the United States District Court for the Northern District of Iowa in Cedar Rapids with another conspiracy to distribute drugs, aren't you? Yes, sir. And this time you're charged with conspiracy to uh, distribute methamphetamine. Yes, sir. And that's what you're in the Lynn County Jail for now. Yes, sir. And, and the charge against you in that indictment arose from 2009 and 2010. Yes, sir. To be clear, in the in the federal system, there is no parole, is there? No, sir. So if you get sentenced to prison, you serve that time minus 13 percent or so for good time behavior. Yeah, 15 percent. And in addition to serving a prison sentence, after you get out of prison you're placed on supervised release. Yes, sir. And supervised release is a form of, of supervision by a federal probation officer. Yes, it is. If you violate supervised release, you go back to prison. Yes, sir. And you violated supervised release before, haven't you? Yes, sir. You violated your supervised release in 1997, 1999, 2005, 2008, and 2019, didn't you? Yes, sir. And you went back to prison? Yeah. So knowing uh, that you didn't have a deal on uh, January 15th when you got new counsel, um, you then informed your lawyer that you had information about Mr. Burns and wanted to speak to the prosecutors. No, I had nothing to do with it at all. Well, you informed your lawyer that you had information about Mr. Burns, didn't you? Well, of course. That's who I had to talk to to um, talk to the prosecutor. Yes, sir. Mr. Uh, Allison, can you tell the men and women of the jury what Section 5K1 of the Sentencing Guidelines provides? It's, I'm not sure the wording on it. Um, you could probably read it to me. Yeah, 5K1 allows the government to ask for a lesser sentence for you than those guidelines call for it. Isn't that right? If you cooperate with the prosecution or investigation of somebody else. Yes, sir. And can you tell the men and women of the jury what Section 3553E of the Federal Criminal Code provides? No, sir. Does that allow the prosecutor to ask a judge to sentence you below a mandatory minimum if you cooperate? You know that, don't you? No, sir. No, I didn't have a cooperating deal. Yeah, that's what I said. You had no cooperation agreement. No, I still don't, sir. And uh, they weren't going to make a, a motion for a reduction unless you cooperated and had a cooperation agreement. I don't know, sir. I've never talked to him about cooperation. Okay. But you're cooperating here, aren't you? I'm, co- I'm cooperating right now. 
But I mean, at that time, I had no cooperation deal, and I had talked to nobody about a cooperation deal. So you met with uh, Mr. Baybanks and Investigator Denlinger on January 28th to tell them what you believed you knew about Jerry Burns and what you'd heard. Yeah, I had I had one meeting. Mr. Allison, when Mr. Burns had visitors, for example, he visited with his family or visited with his pastor or visited with me, you had access to that discovery material, didn't you? Mm, no, sir. <laughs> As you can see, that unit is so small that uh, in that setting, nobody touches anything of anybody else's, sir. Mm. Nothing. And uh, were you on the bottom bunk? Yes, sir. And was Mr. Bur Burns on the bottom bunk? Yes, sir. And that box is right between you? Yes, sir. Okay. Uh, Mr. Allison, are you currently suffering from any emotional or a mental illness? No, sir. Have you ever been diagnosed with a mental illness? Uh, no, sir. Have you ever undergone treatment in a federal prison for a mental illness? No, sir. Or been placed in a special housing unit while serving a sentence for smuggling illegal aliens? A special housing unit? Yes. No, sir. On supervised release, uh, did a federal probation officer or the court order you to obtain a mental health assessment? Uh, yeah, that's pretty normal in federal supervised release. And to follow up with any recommended treatment? Yeah, follow up with any kind of medications or anything people are taking, yeah. Okay. Did you tell a federal probation officer, Mr. Allison, that you'd never been diagnosed with a mental health disorder? I've been diagnosed with some depression issues, but as far as mental health, no. Did you also tell the federal probation officer that you used this diagnosis as a bargaining ship? No, sir. Uh, as far as being in a special housing unit... I, I know that report now that I see it, and it's, it's not accurate as far as how it reads. I was placed in a special housing unit because I take um, seizure medication. And as far as using my uh, mental health for a bargaining chip, that was not said. But I, I've been in a special housing unit for my seizure medication I take daily. So what your probation officer put in uh, quotes? Yeah, we, we actually had an objection with that comment. But as far as a special housing unit, I have been in because of the seizure medication I take. Well, Mr. Allison, your uh, supervised release was revoked because of these allegations, wasn't it? Well, no. No, sir. That my supervised release was revoked because of the time I spent in Mexican prison. <coughs> That's why it was from 2009. So, Mr. Allison, are you using uh, Jerry Burns as a bargaining chip to try to get a better sentence in your federal case? No, sir. Not at all. No other questions. Thank you. Redirect, Mr. Maybanks. Mr. Allison, as you sit here uh, today in front of us and this jury, have you received any kind of promise of a plea agreement or a deal to testify? None at all, sir. When was it while you were living with Mr. Burns in the Lynn County Jail did you decide that you were going to tell your lawyer about what Mr. Burns had been talking about? I decided to approach my attorney after Mr. Burns made the comment about um, he was going to have to take me to the mall if I kept winning a pinochle. That was it for why, me. Why was that the final straw? Um, it disgusted me. Do you have a daughter? Yes, I do. How old is she? She's 17. Nothing further, Your Honor. Thanks for listening, you guys. I hope you enjoyed this episode. What do you think? There was some pretty interesting information, wasn't there? So next week, we're going to be wrapping up the Jerry Burns trial. We're going to be tying up the loose ends as far as that goes. And then we're going to talk about a few more of the Manchester mysteries, which will be coming to an end shortly. And then it'll be on to a new project. And I can't wait. Until next time, you know what to do. Lock your doors, people. Just lock them. Just turn the lock. Latch the chain. Set the alarm. Put a chair in front of your door. Lock your window. 
windows, lock your car, lock your front door, lock your back door, lock all the doors. <laughs> Bye-bye. True Crime IRL is written, produced, and hosted by Kelly Barron's Brink. Please subscribe to True Crime IRL wherever you get your podcasts and consider leaving a five-star review. Go to truecrimeirl.com for more information. Support the show by becoming a Patreon donor. Go to patreon.com slash podcast. You can also support the show by leaving a tip in the TCIRL tip jar. Go to truecrimeirl.com and click on the donate button. Or buy merch in the TCIRL merch shop. truecrimeirl.com slash merch. Watch True Crime IRL on YouTube at youtube.com slash kellybrinktv. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at truecrimeirl, all one word. True Crime IRL theme music is produced by the captain at True Crime Garage. 